He was a big drinker, so I hope he was drunk. <laughs> Just going to throw that out there. Yeah. The uh, hired because he was a race car announcer. And Eddie Graham went up to him and said, hey, do you know anything about wrestling? And he said, no. It's like, good, you're hired. And that was that? Yeah. Wow. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular... Names from all over the country. Former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkel, This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars in Conversations, brought to you by our friends at Astro Radio Z, OneGimmickWorld.com, and iTunes. I'm your co-host, Jay Gilke, and I am sitting here with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from the Berlin Bomber to Marche Rocket. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications and has recently moved into the same neighborhood as our own producer and sound engineer, Kyle. With 20 years of experience, he is a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the incomparable, the one, the only, Derek St. Holmes Esquire. What's up, Derek? It's a quiet neighborhood, but you have to drive everywhere. It's true. Yeah, there's like no food within walking distance. Yes, um... And as someone who teaches in the neighborhood, I can tell you that that is the biggest problem. I don't think once all last school year I left the building at lunchtime to go get lunch anywhere. So true, but Kyle's you save money his doing hands that. at you us. Save right money now. doing that. That's true. Uh, I try not to eat. At I'm school. sorry. I found that the pizza place over here was like upper end drive-in quality pizza. Yeah, but Kyle will agree with that one. Fair enough. Uh, I guess there's a place called Skyline Catering down the road that has really nice sandwiches. Meh. I had a tasty Reuben from there. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Good. There's it a was... taco stop I want to check out too. Where's that? Do you know the uh, name? Packard turns into something and then and then goes to something and there it is. And it's, no, it's called the Taco Stop. Oh, it is. Yeah, we're taking up a lot of time here. That's true. Absolutely. Hey, so. Uh, we're on iTunes, which is awesome. We've been uh, clamoring. Uh, <laughs> you and I have, I should say. I've been clamoring for us to get on iTunes for a while, and we are there now. Hello, um, everyone. Hello, everyone on iTunes. Hey, uh, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. I'm not talking to you, Derek. I'm talking to the people listening right now because uh, <laughs> your neighbor's Kyle, and he's sitting here listening to Hey, Kyle, to us. we're on iTunes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> hey, jo- job hey. is done. Hey, no, uh, all everyone listening effective. to us, please tell your friends, tell your neighbors, anyone that likes the uh, history of professional wrestling, and uh, let them know about the show. Get them to subscribe. Uh, that would be super awesome. We'd love to see the numbers keep going up and up. We appreciate everything that everyone's been doing so far and all the communication, and that one guy that keeps putting Dory Funk Jr. pictures on our <laughs> Facebook page. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can mention that later. That is a, it's an age-old question in wrestling. Well, who would win if it was real? And it's impos- It's really impossible to quantify that because it's, it's not real. Right. You know, it's, it's simulated. So in this case, he asked me, uh, Dory Funk Jr. against... Uh, uh, Vern Gagne. Vern Gagne. Which, can who, I just but say Vern Gagne has legitimate credentials that you can point to and say, here, this is the level of wrestler he was versus Dory Funk Jr. who right. could well, break an arm if he had to. It's like, yeah, I agree he probably could. He could break my arm. Fair enough. But how do you say, you know, it's not like you can check his stats and his right. agility is 18 and Hit point charisma and, is yeah, 12. We're yeah. not playing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, it's funny uh, – I wasn't paying close enough attention to the question, and I thought the guy asked Greg Gagne versus Dory Funk Jr. And I said, well, that's a really weird pairing. And then I thought about it and did did my yard work for the day and did a bunch of stuff and then came back in and said, maybe he said Vern Gagne, and then I rechecked it, and that's what he said. Yes. Now, well, Greg versus Dory would be... 
different conversation, but Greg is, again, a legitimate athlete, but Dory was also a legitimate right, athlete. Right, right. So I'd have to check credentials to find out about All that. I know is that Vern was the toughest guy in the old age home. Um, <laughs> doubtful, but go Well, on. I don't know. His record's 1-0, and oh, right? Poor taste. Yes, absolutely. Hey, uh, both these guys uh, wrestled for a really long time. Uh, and they wrestled a long time ago. As a matter of fact, speaking of a long time ago, they both wrestled in 1979, right? Yes. Um, we're going to talk about 1979 today. Why? Just because? Because it's the year in wrestling. Because it's the one we picked, 1979. Yeah. Right. So uh, how old were you in 79? Thanks, jerk. I was nine years old. I was five, so okay. that's all right. So it's not like we're that <laughs> far off from each other here. Um, oh. it's 79 wrestling would it to me would have been something that I knew existed, but I did not watch regularly. My dad would occasionally catch it, but I think, I think my mom didn't like it or didn't want the kids to see it. So. Yeah. It was, uh, whatever went the studio AWA stuff. I yeah. Think we'd yeah. Catch. Like Every now and then the black studio. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we did the, uh, a lot of that at that point. So a lot happened in 79. Uh, that's what I find interesting about this year. Well, the, the territory system was still chugging along, you know, right. Yeah. You were starting to see the, the effects of, uh, cable and different, different television, but only at the very, is at the very start. Yeah. The superstation was just going up and stuff like that. So wrestling, as we know, it has existed as a, you know, fine humming machine for about 30 years at this point. Right. And there's a lot going on throughout the country, throughout the world, as a matter of fact. And just as kind of a caveat at the beginning here, I just want to say we're not covering every title that switched hands. We'd be here for three days talking about. Exactly. Uh, it's just, this is kind of, we're doing some, as I like to call them, the tentpole things that made 1979 <laughs> a special year. So that's what they say in the movie business, right? Is that right, Kyle? Tentpole. What's that tentpole movie going to be in the summer that's going to, like The Mummy? Just sounds dirty. Right? Tentpole sounds dirty? Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yesterday I made a really bad joke about... No. Uh, yes. About The Mummy... My brother-in-law said he was going to see The Mummy, and I said, Billy Moomy from Lost in Space? <laughs> you know Billy Moomy? It's important to stretch. I know, but yeah. I just that to me that was hilarious, and it, 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 it kind of fell in the same deaf ears as it did here. So speaking of which, so what well, we're going to do— uh, Yeah, uh, <laughs> it just didn't have a reply. There's nothing that's, like a good joke, and that's exactly what that was. <laughs> right, right. So let's start, and we'll start, yes. as every good year does, with the month of January— <laughs> Um, and we're going to go through, and I believe almost every month is spoken for except for March, and that's, you know, <laughs> March. So, well, Kyle was born in, what, what year? Jesus. <laughs> Kyle was born in 1990. Uh, oy, oy, oy. So anyhow, he wasn't even alive for, what, the first, what, four, five WrestleManias? <laughs> You know, and that's the other thing too. Kyle and his Star Wars. Wow, he wasn't you, even alive when Star Wars was uh, for you real. Were, like you don't know a world without WrestleMania. No. Wow, think, that's crazy. Think about that. I know. I know. Wow. That's uh, all right. Well, thanks that, a lot, guys. That kind of took me out of my. <laughs> I know. Suddenly, man, this podcast doesn't seem so important yeah, anymore. Geez. I gotta, okay, I, I guess just, I'm gonna go for a walk, guys. But you know what? He doesn't. Does he does know a world without a Hell in the Cell? Meh, uh, yeah okay anyhow updated cage man yes so let's talk about uh january and uh this one's uh i mean i think it's kind of important that bruiser brody makes his uh, japanese debut you with might all japan possibly lived in a world without an awa <laughs> yeah he kind of did didn't he wow how'd you get the well because you had the stuff okay. yeah that's okay Fair enough. Fair, oh, sorry. Sorry. So, no, that's still, still no, just so that's even that. rocking the world yeah. right there now. Jeez. Oh, so wait, so was that that was after Mid South, right? Mid South was gone by Mid South was gone. Yeah. World class was still around, but barely. In ninety? No, that was some iteration of global or Yeah, I guess you're right. USWA maybe. No oh, boy. USWA jeez. Oh, I'm I, I'm kind of rocked right no, now. No, it would have been USWA because Global was like 91. Yeah. Because I remember being able to drink and wanting to call myself the Lightning Kid because I thought that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Love Holy the Lightning smokes. Kid. All Met right. him and 
Very skinny. There, <laughs> there you go. Not skinny. Bruiser Brody makes his debut in Japan, All Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, that was probably the most lucrative time in his career, wasn't it? Or like at, not that. Oh, time, not on the first tour. Not on the first tour, but. His Japan stuff. That was the stuff that. Yeah, yeah. So he was able to build that into the bulk of his career where he made the bulk of his money in Japan. And that allowed him to become the rebel or whatever that right. everybody's really, you know, knows him for in the States because he didn't need this. He had Japan money, very similar to Stan Hansen. Uh, Bruiser Brody, again, I don't know. I read both sides of this. I'm intrigued by the people that say he was a jerk because he would kill territories. And then leave the weekly guys there to have to pick up all the pieces. Right, right. So, like, he would walk out of a big show. There's the great, I believe it was in San Antonio with him and Mark Lewin, where they, like, clamped on a nerve hold for a good 16 to 20 minutes just to try and kill the crowd. And, like, that was their entire match. Serious? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. That's crazy. Yeah, but, but oh, he was such a rebel. It's like, yeah, I get that, but... right. On the other hand, you did have guys that were trying to support their families underneath, and all of a sudden, boom, the crowds are off for a ne- you know six weeks to a year because Brody pulled some of his shenanigans. Does he have the um, Does he have the Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix mystique? Do you feel, in the sense that if he wouldn't have died or been killed? Uh, would he be still this, I mean, thought of, uh, you know, as, as highly as he is? I know, I think if Janis, Janis Joplin was alive, she'd just be another, she'd be a Joni Mitchell, you know, just kind of doing the doing her thing. Yeah, I but feel still like well-respected, but Brody would have done the, you know, the deal around the horn with Hogan at some point. Yeah. You know, just to get the money. Right. But he, you know, he had a long, distinguished career. Right. No, I, I, yeah. But I'm just saying But it's, I, I feel like he, he's one of those guys. I, I love watching the Brody stuff, especially the Japan stuff. And I'm always just curious. Well, I guess I more, more so think what would have happened, what, like, what could have been, uh, and where they would be at a point like now in their career if they were around. Hopefully retired and yeah, living right, at home. Right. Well, you never know. Uh, anyway, so Brody started with All Japan Pro Wrestling. Yes. January 1979. 1979, but he was also one of the first foreigners to start actively jumping between promotions because he spent time in New Japan as well, going over for Inoki and then coming back for Baba to the point where he started to burn himself out. So he would do one tour, then come back for another one? Well, no, he... no, no. He would he would like be, you know, he'd come for repeated tours with All Japan, but then all of a sudden Brody was like, hey, I'll pay you money to jump and everything because sure. that's so shocking in the Japanese culture. You know, you normally show reverence towards your employer and stuff like that. Right, but right. Then, so, like, if a Japanese person jumped, it would have been very scandalous. But because Brody jumped, that was just, well, we love him, but he's still an American and they do things like that. That, sure. You know. Right. So that, yeah. Um, and would he... But would, it was him, Abdullah the Butcher. They'd all kind of bounce, wouldn't they? All yeah. the Westerners would kind of bounce well, around. Well, right, be, but that was... We're building up this huge reputation for you in all Japan. I want to bring you into New Japan so I can beat you, and that way I can say I beat I'm the better guy. than yeah. all of all Japan. So that was very... Like, there was a lot of pressure on Brody to do the job to Inoki. Right. And uh, which builds to the great story in... Must have been the All Japan Tag Tournament where Brody was teaming with Snuka. No, no, it was a New Japan Tag Team Tournament because he had had problems with uh, Seiji Sakaguchi, who was the tall guy that helped Inoki run. Yeah. You, you, you've seen him in matches. You know, sure. He's a tall Japanese guy. Anyway, uh, but like the story was Brody and Snuka suddenly got off the train on the way to the venue and left the country. Really? And refused to job and then came back and jumped or something like that. Wow. Yeah, there's, um, if I had done more research, I could have told you more about That's it. That's all right. But, um, so he had that reputation even in Japan of being able to sniff out trouble. And, you know, the, if he did, he was gone. Yeah. And he also wasn't afraid to, you know, get physical with somebody if he had to, you know, but wasn't, wasn't known as a shooter, just sure, a right. big, tough guy. But as a, as a businessman, always looking to protect himself, mm-hmm. he was comfortable with, say, like leaving one, going to the other, and jobbing to Inoki. I mean, if the money was right, he, would, that was, he was fine with that? Uh, yeah, but it had to be a very lucrative offer. To where, like, he did an Abdullah. I know at one point Abdullah was making something like 15000 a week 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's the kind of money that, you know, that was involved there for a time. Obviously, that money's not in Japan anymore. Right, right. Because uh, the business has taken such a downturn. Um, this this protection of brand that Brody was very into, but now I'm going to equate him with Honky Tonk Man. Yeah. Where people say Honky Tonk is very difficult to deal with and everything like that, but he protects his brand. Right, of know. course. You know, if he's going to do a job, he's going to get paid for it. But, yeah. You know, like that. Um, obviously, Honky doesn't have the John Wayne <laughs> reputation right. of Bruiser Brody, but I'm just saying, look at that. It's very similar. No, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. We're, let's move along. February 1979. The WWWF, North Wasn't American. Was there a huge blizzard around that time? Probably so. Okay. February, Sorry. yes, of 79. The I'm tired from saying so many W's. The WWWF North American Championship is created, and this surprised me. Ted DiBiase is the inaugural champion, mm-hmm. so he Ted DiBiase was in the North, up in WWF WWWF territory before. I always thought that his first run was as Million Dollar Man. Oh no, I do. I don't remember him being. His first run was in '79. I know. I just got that. <laughs> I just got the notes. No, but that was a time where Ted was being brought up in the business. He was a second generation wrestler. Right. Um, I don't think Mike DiBiase was his natural father. I think it was his stepfather, but adopted him. Okay, you yeah, know, stuff like that. So he was brought up in the business, and he was, again, a benefit of the old school. Oh, that's Mike DiBiase's kid. Ah, oh, let's bring him in, see how he looks, sure. and stuff like that, and they'll help him out, uh, which matured him into the incredible work rate, work rate wrestler that he developed into. Right. Um, and then Vince McMahon brought him back with, with like, the Million Dollar Man deal. Like, sent, sent him out to pasture, so to speak, out doing everything, get, honing the craft. And then brought him back in later. Yeah, on. just brought him in for a run. Yeah, you know. But then that other, by the time Vince came up with Million Dollar Man, Ted was already on top of UWF, being featured as a you know national star, right. UWF level, and knew that with his delivery and interviews and stuff, he could get over. And I remember uh, when DiBiase was before he did Million Dollar Man, he was a babyface, wasn't he? Oh sure. Yeah, he was a babyface for a long time, then turned heel on Junkyard Dog. Dog, right? And was he heel when he went up for to for Million Dollar Man, or was he face at that time? No, no, he was a face at that time because he was given the role. It was him and uh, Doctor Death, Steve Williams, and he was kind of getting Williams polished in that tag team so that Williams sure. could take off as the single. Gotcha. Uh, which led to him wanting to jump because you know Bill Watts laid it out for him and. You know, he knew there was a job, but at the certain at the end of it, he's like, "Okay, he's getting ready. What's going to happen to me here?" It's like, right. "Well, you'll be number two. And Ted right. kind of like, "Oh, okay." And but you know, see you later. Want to jump? Uh, so yeah, so that's that the creation of the North American Championship belt. And when I was now, going, yeah, go ahead. Oh, you can go. Well, I was going to say this is interesting because uh, this is the first time that there was a secondary title in the WWF. Right. Before it was just the, in the, the WWWF, right. sorry, because it was all based around uh, or the the heavyweight championship. Right, I was gonna say around Backlund, but no, haha. Uh, it was always predominantly the heavyweight, the, the uh, babyface heavyweight champion being chased by the monster heels. Blah, right, blah, blah blah blah. And then there was a tag team title that bounced around. And then the uh, the North American. Well, I, you know what? I don't want to get ahead of myself on it. Uh, let's let's put a pin in this one because this is definitely something we're going to come back to. Yes, later but on this is also the start of this secondary title, right? Being the title for work rate wrestlers, right? As opposed to the you know the characters or the caricatures that were always the heavyweight champion, the people that could wrestle quote unquote were given the secondary title. Gotcha, gotcha, and that was kind of viewed too as was was it the gatekeeper or was it the uh, the tryout for the heavyweight title, at, in a sense? Or no, we, not really. No. no. Okay. Not at all. Okay. Just want to know. Just was curious well i mean let's look at your statement well no let's look at your statement later yeah that's what i'm saying let's put a pin (laughs) in that one north american championship created but but i've got you but we could talk about but what about we didn't mention what i'm just you're just playing games doing uncle buck on you there so 
we're gonna skip March wrestling shutdown in 1979. Apparently, yes. nothing happened in March. Well, I mean, nothing happened, you know, at our top level, here. right? But let's remember that in '79 there were still several weekly circuits around the U.S. Um, uh, things were just chugging along. People were watching their localized wrestling, so the cards were going up and going down. Right. People were trying different promotional tactics to draw money. You know, so this is all still going on. It's all business as usual. Yeah. But how do you, you know, outside of, you know, truly momentous or, or truly large crowds, how do you really quantify anything that happens, you know, as part right. of that machine just churning? Right. Right. You know, and then you look at the long term of, well, the crowd was up here and then it came down. But what happened in this, you know, maybe there was a horrendous blizzard that shut down the area for right, three weeks. Right. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all. Not every year, not every month of every year, something spectacular has to happen in wrestling. Uh, true. And you mentioned something earlier about comic books that you knew, you knew they weren't collectible when they started claiming themselves to be collectible that conversation was off the air by the way people you're not missing anything don't go back don't rewind we, we talked about the comic books off the air no there was a good 20 minute segment on that anyway <laughs> but what i'm saying is it's hard now with every pay-per-view being the best pay-per-view in the history right. of this company blah blah blah, blah absolutely blah, uh, that once they started saying that, it kind of drew the luster off something as opposed to the natural build of a huge event. Right. And, wow, did you remember when they built up to that match between X, Y, and Z? Because that, right. you know, that it was took a good the, month yeah, and a half. Time. Yeah, you know. and it's not that way anymore. And I forgot what even happened on last night's pay-per-view. Apparently there was a women's ladder match. There you go. So one, one by a man, kind of. <laughs> but anyhow... <laughs> Uh, that's neither here nor there. And, and it's a finish like that that somebody is patting themselves on the back thinking, God, that was so clever. Right, it's like, right, Ugh. right, exactly. That's the that's the best you came up with. Hey, so speaking of clever, though, Bastards. in April, and not just April 1st, April Fool's Day, which is a clever holiday. I don't even know what that means. The uh, World Wide Wrestling Federation decides to drop wide in its name to become simply the World Wrestling Federation. Yes. Yeah, that's what happened in April. I easier to roll off the tongue. Serious, man. right? Uh-huh. I, I thought I always thought that that wide the the extra W was just a real kick in the ass. I was very interested to discover that when I first read Main Event by Roberta Morgan. Okay, uh, because I had no idea of the history. Like I I had heard the wrestling announcers mention Bruno Sammartino, so I knew that was a name. But then reading it, it was like, wow, there was an extra W. That doesn't. I had no idea. You know. I thought it was a typo the first time I saw it in yes. one of those books because uh, they re- kept referring to the Northeast, Northeast, Bruno San Martino, the Northeast, right. Pedro Morales, blah, 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 WWW. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Did they, this stupid author. Wrestling is exciting, <laughs> but they left an extra W <laughs> in there. Yeah, so that was kind of crazy. But so that that's the big one in April. Um, it would have been interesting to, to see. I wish there was footage or there was a, some kind of a press release or something that I'm sure I could find something on the interwebs because uh, that just changing the name like that. I mean, I, we were around for when they changed WWF to WWE. That's one thing. And that's very public. And I would be interested to see how they handled this back then. I doubt it was anything spectacular. I just think you think is, they just in the next, uh, week this is what we're going to do. And boom, you know, yeah. and the announcers probably say, well, we decided to shorten the name to get more with the modern times, and now it's just going to be the WWF. And that was probably Who's it. Who's that? That was Bruno. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to clear it up. That, that was, was Bruno, doggone it. Uh, I just want to tell you that I'm going to get Larry Zabisco in the ring, and I may have to I may have to strangle Larry Zabisco. I like that. That's good. I, I feel like he's here with us. Thank you very much. Um, so, hey, guess what? Nothing happened in May either uh no again things, another m things month. chugging along <laughs> heels are being built up for runs you know right. people are people are working through programs at one point especially in 79 at every night of the week wrestling was happening somewhere in the united states for sure yeah i mean just every night of the week somewhere it was the only exception of sunday but even then that was just the different areas down in the Bible Belt. Sunday was off, like right. Memphis. That was their only day off, but they would still work. You know, if they had to reschedule another show, they'd work that Sunday. But usually, 
that was it. But right. The rest of the promotions are seven days a week. Uh, just recently, a um, at a, I, we did an, an outdoor festival for a, a bike rally where they serve tacos and stuff, and the the show was outside and it was incredibly hot. But Sorry. a friend of mine um, worked worked one show. Worked a show at the festival, drove somewhere else, worked a show there, came back, then worked a third match that day and was crowing all about it and everything. I pointed out like, okay, so could you imagine doing this and that's just your Sunday and tomorrow night you've got to get in the, you know, you've got to get in the car and make Madison. Right. And then... Tuesday, you and that's well, and your week, Madison's and then even short. That's well, like a, you know, an hour. I, I mean, some of these guys were going four. Or five, but I'm throwing that out. You didn't get that rest. Like right. you worked three times every Sunday. Yeah. Uh, in Memphis, in Jerry Jarrett's book, the story I reiterated at that point was they had five matches on Saturday, and Jesus. that was that was their. It was like ten o'clock in Memphis for a TV, noon somewhere else for a TV. Three o'clock for a TV, which led to the house show that night, and then drive to another place for an eleven o'clock live TV. Really? And that was their Saturday. An eleven o'clock at night show? Yeah. Whoa, she's. You know, and that was, and they said that they couldn't, didn't really have time for showers, so they would pack towels and plastic bags, like wet towels, and that's how they'd wash up between matches. Fun. But again. That's that's your job, right? Exactly. Like every you're Saturday, it. you're wrestling five times, and then Sunday you're wrestling X number of times. Then you're getting back and you're doing that loop. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely not. So that's what's going on in these months. We don't have anything. Right, right. No. Like you say, the machine is churning. Roscoe Monroe Merrick was born on December 18, 1928, in the Wild West town of Dodge City, Kansas. As a teenager, Merrick showed an interest in both boxing and wrestling, which led him to join the wrestling team at his high school during ninth grade. This interest coincided with a job at his stepfather's bakery where he began associating with the black workers. In an era ripe with Jim Crow and segregation, he openly questioned the process. He didn't understand why skin color played any part in a social process. The young man was a rebel at heart and given the chance would always stand up for the rights of the underdog. After leaving the Navy in 1947, Merrick began wrestling at local carnivals against seasoned professional opponents for $5 a match. His first match was in Wichita, Kansas against a formidable opponent named Bill Eli. Young Merrick would win by submission over Eli and then be hired on the spot to wrestle for the carnival as a full-time employee. It was during this time that Merrick learned the psychology of crowds. In 1951, Roscoe adopted the pretty boy rock persona and began wrestling through the Midwest. He would hurl taunts at frazzled opponents, insult their nervous girlfriends, and verbally manipulate the riotous crowds. The lessons he learned during this time period would set the standards that are still being used by wrestlers today. As legend has it, Roscoe Monroe Merrick would receive his most famous nickname during a stint wrestling in Mobile, Alabama in 1958. The story goes that after embracing a black hitchhiker that he had brought into the television studios of WKRG, a visually shaken white woman stated, You're nothing but a damn Sputnik, as a verbal barb. The term Sputnik was used in reference to the satellite launched into space by the USSR in October 1957, and any reference to communism was taken to be as an absolute insult. But where one man hears an insult, another sees dollar signs, and thus the character of Sputnik Monroe was created. Sputnik Monroe landed in the Memphis wrestling scene during January of 1959, working for the NWA promotion ran by Nick Gullis and Roy Welch. Attendance at the Monday night shows at Ellis Auditorium was in the doldrums. However, big changes were on the horizon, as the future long-running Saturday television show was just about to make its debut. Television was the perfect conduit for Sputnik's trademark insult-spouting, crowd-baiting persona. Conditions were right for Sputnik's launch into the wrestling stratosphere. Monroe understood the all-important psychological aspect of the sport. His trademark white streak, the result of an earlier head wound, in the middle of his jet-black hair only served to generate attention from the fans. His over-the-top interviews and overwhelming self-confidence would soon bring hatred from the fans, and that's exactly what Monroe wanted. 
He was truly a promoter's dream in that he possessed the good looks, physique, and flamboyant charisma needed to bring professional wrestling into the spotlight. He called his style of wrestling scientifically rough. In turn, the fans called Sputnik the most hated man in Memphis. During the late 50s, most wrestlers generally traveled from town to town and seldom settled into regularly working a territory. Sputnik Monroe would change that scenario with his feud involving Memphian Billy Wicks. While Monroe was the loudmouth, braggadocious villain, Wicks, a Shelby County Sheriff's deputy, represented the all-American type. Their feud reached its climax on a hot summer night at Russwood Park, a baseball stadium located on Madison Avenue in downtown Memphis. August 7, 1959, a stadium record 13,749 fans turned out to watch Monroe wrestle Billy Wicks with boxing champion Rocky Marciano as guest referee. This would stand as a wrestling event attendance record in Memphis for almost 40 years. Memphis in 1959 was not exactly a hotbed of racial harmony. Most white Memphians in the late 50s just didn't hang out with the black folks. Sputnik Monroe did, and he fit in perfectly. The tattooed and pompadoured wrestler would frequent the blacks-only clubs on Beale Street, sporting a colorful suit and soaking up the attention of his adoring fans. While the white fans hated the loudmouth Sputnik, black fans loved him along with his anti-establishment attitude. It wouldn't be long before white teenagers became fans as well due to his cool, rebellious nature. To white teenagers, Sputnik was truly the epitome of rock and roll. He was everything that your parents warned you about and then some. His rebellious legend was boosted on January 14, 1960, when he was arrested on Beale Street by Memphis police officers for, quote, drinking in a Negro cafe with Negroes, unquote. Keeping true to his anti-authoritarian stance, Monroe chose black attorney Russell B. Sugar Mom Jr. to represent him in Memphis criminal court. According to court personnel, that was the first case in which a white defendant was represented by a black attorney. During the trial, Sugar Mom stated to Judge Beverly Boucher that Monroe had the constitutional right to be wherever he wanted to be in Memphis. Judge Boucher disagreed with the Constitution and found Monroe guilty. His fine was $25. As Sputnik's star began to defiantly shine in Memphis, he openly questioned the promoter's decision to seat blacks in the upper-only reaches of Ellis Auditorium. There were few seats in the upper balconies at Ellis, so many black fans were turned away at the door rather than being allowed to sit next to white patrons in the lower section. This procedure did not sit well with the societal logic of Sputnik. One night he told Memphis promoters that if blacks weren't allowed to sit in the lower section of the auditorium, he was done wrestling in Memphis. The promoter gave in, and the first recorded act of public integration in Memphis took place. A professional wrestler had single-handedly taken on Jim Crow in the heart of the South and claimed victory. As Sputnik has so eloquently stated, I'm not a do-gooder, I'm just a doer, just a doer. Sputnik Monroe would wrestle in Memphis throughout 1960 before moving on to wrestle in other territories in an attempt to achieve national fame. The Diamond Ring and Cadillac Man would pass through many areas and studios through the remainder of his career, but he would never surpass the popularity he had garnered during his stay in Memphis. He was always incredibly rough on both himself and his opponents during matches. In the ring, Sputnik didn't give nor ask any quarter. Sputnik returned to Memphis in the 70s with tag team partner Norvell Austin. One of their first major feuds was with the new anti-establishment heroes, a duo called the Hippies. To fans, Monroe had ironically become the establishment. Sputnik Monroe was the ultimate bad guy and innovator of the anti-establishment hero. He possessed a complete understanding of the sport of professional wrestling and in the ring, he performed like no other. The man who started his career as a carnival wrestler would leave his mark on the wrestling world for both his toughness and his stand for integration in Memphis. Sputnik Monroe served as a champion for a segment of the Memphis population that badly needed one. There will never be another one like him. Sputnik Monroe passed on November 3, 2006 in Edgewater, Florida after a long battle with lung cancer. He was 77 years old.
in June, um, June 6th to be exact, Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashon win the AWA World Tag Team Championship from Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, we've talked about this in the past, too. I know the with the AWA title, and we've talked a little bit about Pat Patterson. This is another one of those I think we want to put a pin in, but just remember what's going on at this point with uh, Vern and the Mad Dog getting those uh, tag team titles from Patterson and Stevens. Uh Anything to say about that? Yes, the angle building up to this is Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashon had been longtime rivals. and Was this before Pine Box? Wait, no, that wasn't that. I'm yeah, sorry. this would have been way before Pine Box. Yeah. His Pine Box was until 83. Okay, yeah, sorry. So that was another four years after this. Again, the machine churning. Right, right. You know, um, uh, Vern and Mad Dog were teaming up, and it was one of those deals where Vern decided he needed a partner, and the only person he knew that was tough enough would be his, his mortal enemy. And so they came out and cut the promo that's still available where at the end of the promo, Vern said, okay, this is the deal. We're going to do this. And at the end of it, you're going to go your way and I'm going to go mine. Like we're not friends, but we're teaming up because we know we can beat these two. But now, even saying though, but that by that logic, we can beat these two. But if they got the belts and they're going their separate ways, was it one of those like friendships made in hell type thing going on? Then were they forced to team together to defend the belts? I don't recall. Yeah, that I don't. Point. That's what I was gonna say. I don't know. I, I don't. It wasn't a long reign. No. And at this point, too, I'm assuming that Bachwinkle's heavyweight champion, right? That's why Patterson's with Stevens. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens, of course, the Blonde Bombers, well known from their time in San Francisco. Uh, both stars at different times in San Francisco, but one just one of the top level tag teams that are out there. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, that was, was real just, subtle. No, that's all good. Cut. Uh, so very, very good. So again, remember the name Pat Patterson. Put a pin in June when he, uh, him, and Ray Stevens lose the AWA Tag Team Championships because this is all going to come back. Uh, if you know, kind of gets itself out in the wash here at the end. You'll see. We're going to move on to July. Uh, I, July thirteenth was my birthday uh, that month. That wasn't listed in the uh, notes. July first is my birthday. Listen to that. Yep. So Jesus. I feel like I need to high-five you. Too bad we're holding papers and microphones. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Pro Wrestling Illustrator releases its debut issue, cover dated September 1979 to newsstands. Yes, with the uh, double shot of Mil Mascaris and Dusty Rhodes. Absolutely. Uh, Kyle just cover. looked it up, actually. Oh, yeah. And Dusty's wearing the odd singlet that he had for a while. That's a great story, uh, I think, after and after yes. his book where he's talking about that, where he's like, we need that one picture. I was just going to drop that. Neither one of them wanted to do, do it. it. Right. Uh, Dusty Rhodes is legendary for his ego, as is Mil Mascaris, who we've already discussed ad right. nauseum. Uh, just fantastic. No, I'm not going to lose. That, right. That's what, right. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not. And neither to one wanted the picture. Neither one wanted the picture. Neither one wanted the comparison. Then all of a sudden, snap! There, boom! There's the, there's the cover of your your magazine. Yeah, which is pretty a pretty great cover to be honest with you for that. Sure. For that time. A uh, good good wrestling magazine covers always make me think of barber shops. Why is that? Well, like that's that's you walk in and there's a table with the assortment of men's magazines and there should be you know. The wrestler or pro wrestling illustrated on there as well. Interesting. Yeah, I would never. I mean, I have my. I mean, obviously, you're not going to find that in a barber shop now. Right. Yeah. I um. Uh. One of one of the other headlines. Uh. What was this? The the fear that will always haunt Bob Backlund. Do we? Then they don't really say what it is. Do they? Uh. No. No. It's that he's going to injure somebody. Those story. I mean, all of those stories are kind of canned, and you can. Right. You know. You know. So usually that story are like. The crippling secret that haunts somebody is they hurt somebody, you know, they hurt somebody in the beginning of their career. Right. Or that they're going to hurt somebody again, you know, because they're just, you know, so powerful. They're just so powerful and great at that. So, yeah, so that's pretty. Backlund was freaky strong, though. He, uh, you've communicated with Backlund. Yes, yes, several times. Close personal friend. So Pro Wrestling Illustrated, probably, would you say in the history of pro wrestling, the most popular, what most well-known magazine? Uh, yes, because it did have the benefit of television exposure, but I don't have a sense. Well, I got the, I always got the after mags, but I knew that there was the Napolitano mags, which might have come out of the same company as Starlog. Yeah. You know, so I'm not sure. 
I, I don't really know how that, that world works. It would have been like, I, I only think it was more popular because that's the one I got, but there may have been more of the other on the newsstands because of distribution and deals made under you know the sight of a gun and things like that. Speaking of Starlog. Um, <laughs> speaking of Starlog. Speaking of Starlog. When I was young and my sister, someone had uh, purchased a Fangoria magazine. Yes. yes, very familiar. And this is, again, I was pretty young and still scared of scary movies and stuff like that. And my sister was like, look at this. And she showed it to me and it was freaky and I was creeped out by it. But if you remember in the back of Fangoria's, people could just write in and they would just do like one line. It would be like, um, Jason lives. Uh, this is Michael and... Receipt of California or something. <laughs> just always, they would have like uh, two pages dedicated to just um, messages from the fans. Like shout outs? Like shout outs. Okay. And it would be like, it would just say stuff, you know, yeah, like uh, Michael Myers lives in my basement. And then it would be like Bill from Toledo. It would just, they just had this list of all this. Uh-huh. And then sometimes there would be a random picture like, I met Rick Baker. And one, it was, uh, it said like horror rules. And then it was like punk rock forever. And then it was like, here's a picture of Greg Valentine with Blondie. Sure. And it was just, someone sent it for no reason. I thought that was really great. And because that was the one thing. So I kept, I held on to that issue of Fangoria and I still have it to this day without a cover on it. Because I, I, just I would like to great. see the picture of Greg Valentine and Blondie because I know she has pictures with Andre and maybe Piper. Like, yeah. like the, but she's got the same coat on in both. So you oh, can so tell like, like she was just like there. Yeah. Yeah. But that was kind of neat that the, uh, just this guy for randomly sends in a picture of Greg Valentine with Blondie. Uh, since we've totally hijacked the show, the interesting fact about Starlog that I enjoy now is there was a fire at the warehouse that had all of the back issues of Starlog. And now you can't get like oh, all, right. all the ones that are out there are all the ones that That's exist. All right. Yeah. So like there's no there's no back you can't get that from Starlog Enterprises anymore. Um, uh, but you could always get the Pro Wrestling Illustrated back issues because they were always listed. Yeah, and I always thought that that was interesting. That wow, they they printed off extra copies of all of these. So they could have that. But now that I understand the business, like no, this is all just like in, that in, in Aptor's garage or right. whatever. You know, right. like here, take them. It'll well, be so fun. many of those do get sent back. You know, what what doesn't sell a lot of times they do. Yeah, but don't the they cover. cut off the masthead or something? Yes, yeah, so on some of those. But I mean, I'm sure he kept. Yeah, uh, they, they printed so many. Uh, all right, moving right along. We're still in July, July 8th, as a matter of fact. Sandwiched right between your birthday and mine. Uh, Ric Flair defeats Buddy Rogers by submission in the Battle of the Nature Boys in Greensboro, North Carolina. How many times do you think they wrestled each other? Not many. Did, the, was there a true? Was there heat between the two of them? Was no, there, no, not no. at all. No, that was. I think Buddy Rogers just wanted to come out of retirement to show he could still have it. Gotcha. Yeah. But no, there were there were three to four matches maybe. Okay, so and it wasn't like they didn't like. Do that. I was always amazed that that was something I couldn't find on tape trading or anything. Yeah. But I think I think that was just a little a little bit. I know that the footage has come up recently, uh, which is great because you can see how good of a worker Rogers is. There's also another there's another series of matches with Buddy Rogers when he was managing Snuka and came out of retirement briefly. I want to say there's two matches on YouTube with that. And they were having a uh, – check them out because Rogers at 62 works the bulk of a tag match, and it's incredible because yeah. he, he could still do everything. But then the angle had to be changed because he, like, slipped in, in a locker room and broke a hip and tried to sue the company and all oh, that really? stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, yeah, so that led to his quick exit there. Gotcha, gotcha. But that's I always think that's kind of a note. You know, having the nature boys. Yes, like I saw the pictures in one of the after mags looking back features one time. I was like, oh, this exists. How come I never heard about this? And what does it mean? And I was very excited for the Buddy Rogers, uh, Buddy Landell match that was supposed to happen with tri-state wrestling. Yeah. But then they went out of business and it was like, what does that mean? Right. It just doesn't happen. Can't they still have them? Doesn't anybody else want to do this momentous match? No. No, I guess not. Well, that's like we talked about too. The Buddy Landell never went and did the feud with Ric Flair either. Or did the the program with Ric Flair he was supposed to? Right. Well, he was all coked up and right. decided he didn't have to go. Exactly. 
Buddy Landell, met him at the fair. All right, going. Yep. <laughs> so, hey, uh, the next one, we've talked about this numerous times. So we're yes. just going to mention it, and then we're going to probably pop, or, pop on. But in August, Bill Watts uh, purchases the NWA-affiliated Tri-State Wrestling promotion from Leroy McGurk, uh, withdraws the company from the NWA, and renames it as the Mid-South Wrestling Association. Yeah, there is a lot going on there. Yeah, for sure. Um. Purchases Tri-State from Leroy McGurk, gave him a token payout so that uh, he didn't totally wreck him because he did, uh, Bill Watts did have an admiration for Leroy McGurk, but uh, just became a bitter old man and uh, wasn't fun to deal with. Uh, Now, there was all sorts of legal maneuverings with uh, Bill Watts taking over this territory because there were other... So I understand that there were other promoters. You said we were going to go right by it. That's all right. No, no but we're go just going to pump the brakes right here. Um, there were other promoters in the area. I'm sure that Leroy Calkins, perhaps. The names coming up to me that were purposely running territories at a deficit to show how Bill Watts and his territorial practices were trying to put them out of business. Oh, got it. Yeah. And that's where guys like the great Mephisto was booking and the Freebirds were there. Uh, so when like Bill Watts tried to buy out Leroy McGurk, he's like, okay, if he's going to buy out that, he's got to buy out this other state too and take that lawsuit along with it. Sure. So there was all sorts of payouts and legal maneuverings there to, to clear up issues that had been in the area before he could solidify this area. And I'm sure he was very happy, but this became such a worry for the people he had working for them because they were driving 23 hours a day. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I think it was Dutch Mantel said the one time he knew he had to quit was when he left the show and the sun was up and he drove through the night and when he got home, the sun was back up. Oh, Jesus. And he knew he knew that was too long. Yeah, for he sure. He just had to go. Yeah, that's... Uh... Definitely. I mean, but again, it's that time. It's what guys were doing. So yeah, especially in that area, right? Um, so we we kind of breeze by it a little bit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but Bill Watts, you know, a great had a great model for running a territory. Had his vision, knew what he wanted to do with it. Unfortunately, uh, that business model was not not sustainable to blow up to a national level. Right. No, I yeah. That, I I always love Mid South, so I thought that was great stuff. Um, all right. Let's move on then. Uh, we're going to go to September of 1979. And this is where the WWF Intercontinental Championship title is created. Uh, it's, everyone's heard this story. I mean, I, you know, it, yeah, it's the whole Pat Patterson is basically given the, the title, so to speak. Um, but this is where we're going to kind of take a look back at some of the stuff that happened previously in this year and see how this all ties together. And it goes back to that February with the WWWF North American Championship with Ted DiBiase. So at some point between February and September, Patterson beats DiBiase for the American Championship, the North American Championship. Yes. And is holding on to it. Yes, using a pair of brass knocks, I believe. Okay. And now, so that was acknowledged on television, correct? Yes. They then decide that... Patterson, and again, this is all in the story. Right. right. I had always heard it was Patterson met the South American champion Correct. to become the Intercontinental champion. Right. And, but, and then was the, it, but the, the tournament came tournament. later. But, oh, so the tournament came later. I, be, I, I believe so. It's kind yeah. of like a yeah. either or. He either met the South American champion, which never really existed, of course. True. Or participated in a tournament, an eight-man tournament that never really existed. True. Gotcha. And then, but basically all they did is they took the North American Championship and just renamed it. Yes. And that's what Patterson had. Yes. So DiBiase wins the North American Championship in February. Patterson finishes his run with AWA after losing the tag belts with Ray Stevens in June. So then I guess somewhere between June and September, he comes in and wins. Now, hold on. Hold on a second. Uh, there is a fairly good chance that Patterson was competing in both feds. Okay. Because really? Yes. Because the important thing that you had to do in order to be seen in both federations is be there for TV tapings. Okay. And then that's what would keep your face on the crowd, 
you know, your face in the crowd's mind. And then there's a good chance he would only come in for major shows. Now, this is very common. For example, uh, Ken Patera held the Missouri Championship and the Intercontinental Championship at the same time. Okay, gotcha. So he was working both the St. Louis area and the WWF. You know, and it was just a matter of what dates you were needed for both. And that was fine. So he was kind of that journeyman hopping between the two of them. Exactly. Wow, okay. So and so just because Patterson was still champ in New York, remember this is 79, so there's not a lot of cable penetration, he could still be brought in. To, <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking about Cinemax again? Sure. Sorry. Incidentally, just a fact I love to say, any advancement in technology is always first exploited by the adult film industry. Absolutely. It's, I love it. That was good, though. What was it cable penetration? No, it wasn't that good. I thought it was a good line. Uh, but there's not cable penetration, so you could have different storylines. You know, right? Be, Patterson could be a face here and a heel here, or work both feds, or even drive out. You know, go down to the Houston shows and just appear as a big star there. As well. I guess I always thought it was cut and dried. Like you were either you were in this territory, you did your run, and then you left and went somewhere else. Sent your videos to the other one, getting ready, prepping you to come in. I didn't realize. Well, there that weren't you could... there weren't really videos at that point. Well, I guess right. yeah, you're right. Yeah, all you had were pictures. You had pictures and references. Right. So all the promoters were all talking, and they all knew who the boys were. And so there might be a hey, uh, do you have a big show happening May 9th? Because I've got the the, the Astrodome. Got no, oh, no. got sure. Hey, can I have so and so that day? Yeah, boom, send them down to do a TV taping. You know, so he's not appearing around the loop. Yeah. They just does the TV taping, does interviews that build up to this big card. Gotcha. Okay. So the actual participation needed, uh, for example, when people went into the WWF or whatever, they would go in for a series of three TV tapings. Okay. Which meant that they were featured on TV for nine weeks before they were ever put into the, you know, the, sure. the weekly yeah. rotation. Yeah. So, like, Jimmy Valiant was still working down in Texas when he was doing his bit going back and forth. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. Though. So, you know, it's the, the fluid nature of the business and how, you know, right. where are you able to go somewhere. So, we see the the carrying through here with Patterson. We're going to have to keep the Patterson thing's going to chug on here into the... Um, Patterson chugging. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't think about no, that. That's not so funny. Uh, before we go back to another the uh, wrap up the year with Pat Patterson, um, uh-huh. let's talk about Hulk Hogan. Remember that guy? Uh, yes. Keep going. So that is uh, November of '79 is when Hogan makes his debut for the WWF, competing as a heel and managed by Freddie Blassie. True. And who does he wrestle either his first match on TV or his first match in the Madison Square Garden with? Was it Andre? No, it was Ted DiBiase. It was Ted DiBiase. Yeah. No, he did Andre in the Shea Stadium. Yeah, with, but that's yeah. that's where Ted got him ready to do that. Okay, gotcha. Sorry. So yes. this would have been the start. We're building, we're bringing in Hogan. We're going to build him as a heel. Now, I don't know if they deliberately said we're going to go here because he did have a run with Backlund, but it wasn't very good. Yeah. So I think they saved him more for Andre. Gotcha. And then so that was the... Um, that was his first time. And then, of course, we know that he ends up leaving, heading to AWA, and then mm-hmm. the rest is coming out in a Netflix special in a couple weeks, I think. There's a new Hulk Hogan movie coming it's, out? It's a whole thing, yeah. Okay. But, but like the lawsuit between him and Gawker. Sure. So, anyhow, yeah. That's neither Here's how here you get around that. Don't get filmed having sex. Exactly. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. So, uh, so that brings us to November thirteenth, where the the storyline starts off involving the Grand Wizard. This is in WWF for the Intercontinental Champion Pat Patterson. So basically, Grand Wizard uh, sells the contract of Patterson to Captain Lou Albano, and this is where this all starts to begin playing out on the uh, uh, WWF Championship Wrestling uh, tapings. Happens in Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, and then these segments all ended up airing throughout the month of December. Uh, do you remember this at all? Uh, Are you familiar with it? Well, go ahead through it because I have a, a larger perspective. Thing yeah, to for sure. So it. let me, I'm just going to kind of go through here. So what the end result was is Patterson, uh, he objects to the whole deal uh, because he says that he never consulted with the Grand Wizard and he hates Albano and he says he's morally corrupt and he's ugly and fat and he's a stinking bum. So uh, I'm just hearing his voice. You morally corrupt, uh, ugly, fat, <laughs> right, thinking right, bum. Right, exactly. And so he fires the Grand Wizard. 
Uh, and that uh, I say you're fired. Uh, and that results in him becoming uh, babyface. That was horrible. Yep. Which some say I don't know if it's for sure, but some say this makes Patterson the first wrestler to turn from heel to face while holding a major singles title title in the WWF. It never had happened before that time. True. So, um, and then it goes on also in the, the notes to say that in 1989, some nine and a half years later, the champion Randy Savage would uh, become the second to turn while holding the major title. You're thinking. Well, I, I again, should have done research for this. But if Patterson turns face as Intercontinental Champion, then who does he lose it to? Kyle, go ahead and look that up. I if there know. was only a machine we could use that could yes. give us this detail. But while he's looking that up, I do want to say that uh, manipulation of the contracts of wrestlers is a trope that was very uh, very much used in the Northeast. Oh, was it? Uh, going back to there was a manager, Tony Angelo, that predated Lou Albano, who managed Ivan Koloff. Okay. Uh, but then they just came out and said, Albano bought the contract of so-and-so. Like, that was a trope that they would use to uh, either move wrestlers or something like that. So Patterson loses to Ken Patera April 21st, 1980. Oh, sure. Then that's when Patera would have been the uh, uh, Missouri champ as well. Okay. So, yeah. So that's that's what happens. Okay. So Patera that... was a heel. Of course, then. So right. I'm sorry. Just I'm mentally trying to go through who who <laughs> the the progression of champions. I believe Patera would have lost it to Pedro Morales, who lost it to Morocco, back to Morales, back to Morocco, to Tito Santana, Santana Valentine. Valentine, Santana, Randy Savage, and then et al. Right. Yeah. And then everybody. Yeah. Kyle sorry, just added yes, steamboat. Then, yes, I know, I know. The kids love the WrestleMania three match. Uh, he, you weren't even alive, the, Kyle. Stop the the luster, about this stuff. the luster of the WrestleMania three match is was just taken off of for me when I realized that that match was totally planned. What do you mean by planned? Like the whole thing, like just scripted? Yes, about yeah. It. Like they wrote that match, and then over the next couple of weeks, like refresh the script with each other right but that was macho style i know and that just i don't like that so oh i'm Kyle being asked by why, why, yeah, why am Kyle i against that? because to me the art is in the improv and going out there and reading the crowd and what do they want and let's give it to them or better yet what do they think they want but they really want this so we're going to tease it that's just my personal the art of wrestling right I kind of agree with you on that. Yeah, I like to I like to have I call it the clay framework and go out there and throw clay at it until it looks like a match. Right. No, and I think sometimes you, it never does. Yeah, sometimes it just never it just just looks like a pile. Um, but the the truth we it, in the business call that the shits. Yes. Yes. Just so you the know. The term my wife hates that when matches I call stuff the, the shits. shits. Why do you have to call everything the shits? I said that's ah, just just yeah. a, a nice thing to to say. So, um, so anyhow, so there we go. So. Again, we're gonna. I'm gonna go back through this and say, look at how everything transpired that year leading up, and this is basically the year of Pat Patterson. Oh no! Okay, I understand what you're saying, but I'm still going to come back and say you can't say it's the year of Pat Patterson without considering all of his San Francisco work. No, I like know. this Pat Patterson here has actually lost a step. I'm saying this is the year in review of Pat Patterson. Okay, fair enough. Not like, not like the. I'm just saying the amount of Pat Patterson that we covered in 1979. He had a very busy year that year. Yes, there was a lot going on with him. Incidentally, I recommend his book. Is it? it good? Do, it doesn't really have a lot about wrestling. Has more about his. Uh, I don't want to say adventures or experiences as a gay man in. Um, gay Perry. Shush. <laughs> Like a gay man in a, a you know overly macho sure. business and the different. How recent is the book? Uh, two years. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it, it's a WWF release. So oh, I didn't even some, know that. So it doesn't go into the good juice, but oh, stop! I didn't say anything. Um, the story that is not in Patterson's book but is addressed in the book when they were big time by rock rims which is a history of san francisco wrestling is a time when pat patterson and roy shire the promoter of yes. san francisco uh were riding and passed a group of hell's angels and roy shires either flipped them off or made a comment very opinionated man 
So the Hells Angels pull them over, pull Shires out of the car, beat the hell out of him, turn to Pat Patterson and says, what are you going to do to keep us from doing that to you? And without blinking, Patterson says, I'm going to give you the world tag team titles. And opens up his trunk, pulls out the belts, hands them to the gang. They, okay, thanks. And they drive off and he takes Roy Shires to a hospital. That is awesome. And that is an incredible way for us to end this episode. Derek, that was super cool. Uh, really need to go through 1979. We'll do this again with another year. Uh, the story, again, Pat Patterson. Uh, just a way to go with that. That was great. All right. You tied that up fantastic. So, Derek, to wrap things up. See, I heard the crowd, and I knew what they he wanted. He threw the clay. Yeah, and just, boom. That's go. what we do, people. Done. We, we throw the clay, and Bob we hope Ross something sticks. Bob Ross has nothing on me. Uh, all right. Well, very good. Well, hey, uh, this is your co-host, Jay Gilkay. And you've been listening to Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire, brought to you by Astro Radio Z, OneGimmickWorld.com, and iTunes. Please remember, subscribe, people, and we will see you next time. <laughs>